Good morning. All right, this morning we are continuing the series that we've been in for a little while now, The Life of Paul. Actually, it's Life of Paul Series 3. That's because we just keep pretending like it's a new series every time we take a break and start back up again. Um, so right now we're on Part 8, The Trip to Jerusalem, but Part 8 really is just Part 8 since we restarted back up. Um, if you count the sermons from last year, this is actually Part 35 in the life of Paul, okay? This is the 35th sermon that we've done preaching through the life of Paul, also known as Saul. He had two names, Paul and Saul. Um, and we have mostly been in the book of Acts for this past, you know, couple of years, at, those, at least those 35 weeks, um, because that's where his story is mostly, although we have occasionally gone to letters that Paul wrote in order to figure out things from his life. Uh, today's text is Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there. If you have a phone with a Bible on it, you can go ahead and start Sweep, swiping there. Um, Acts 21, 1 through 14. We are going to pick up right where we left off last week. So if you were here last week, hopefully you remember our associate pastor, Doug Davison, um, preached out of Acts chapter 20, and he said that it was the first pastor's conference. Do you remember that? It was the speech that Paul gave to the Ephesian elders. There were these church leaders, and they showed up, and Paul did this speech in a town called Miletus. So the next thing that happens is Paul leaves Miletus, and he starts traveling to Jerusalem. So that's what we're going to learn about today. It's the very next section of Acts. There are, I'll just let you know, um, there are two surprising things in this passage that I'm going to read to you. At least I think there are two, at least two things that are surprising in this passage. So let's go ahead and begin with Acts chapter 21, verse 1. After we tore ourselves away from them and set sail, we came by a direct route to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. Let me pause real quick because we got some dramatic stuff right here. Okay, as it starts off, the passage begins with, after we tore ourselves away from them. What is, what is that? Who tore themselves away from who? And why are they tearing themselves away from anybody, right? Like that sounds like a big deal. That sounds very emotional and dramatical, you know, dramatic. What, what does that mean? And so that makes a lot of sense if you just had read the verses that were just before it, right? So if you remember the way that the passage ended last week, I'll reread it. The last three verses that Doug read last week in the passage just before this one says this. This is Acts 20, starting in verse 36. After he said this, he being Paul and this being like the speech he gave to the Ephesian elders. He knelt down and prayed with all of them. There was a great deal of what? Weeping by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they escorted him to the ship. So it makes sense that then the next verse is after we tore ourselves away from them. They just had this emotional goodbye. These were for people that were close friends. They'd known each other for years and they were upset that like, I'm never gonna see you again as, you know, as long as I'm alive. And so, um, so they were upset about it and they were grieving and they were hugging and then they tore themselves away from them. So that's why it begins the way it does. The other thing I wanna point out in this verse is it says, after we tore ourselves away from them. It does not say after Paul tore himself away from them. It does not even say after they tore themselves away from them. It says we. We is like a first person personal pronoun, right? When you say we, you're not talking about other people. You're talking about yourself plus some other people, right? Right, when you say we go to lunch. So the guy who wrote Acts, his name's Luke, right? Luke is telling us in this verse that he was there for this. 
There are other places in the book of Acts where he says, they, they did this, they did that. And you can tell that he at some point must have heard some things um, from some eyewitnesses and then he wrote down, this is what happened, okay? But that's not what's happening in this passage. He's not, he didn't figure out what happened and then go, here's what happened to them. He says, after we tore ourselves away from them and set sail, we came by a direct route to cost. So Luke is in this story. He was there when they were on the beach and they were all crying and grieving and never see his face again. He's on the boat with Paul as they're traveling traveling to Jerusalem. Luke is there as an eyewitness for all of this. So number, verse number two, finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. After we sighted Cyprus, that's an island, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and arrived at Tyre because there, the ship was, un, to, was to unload its cargo there. So this is a travel log that Luke is giving. We went to this city, then we went to this city, we got on a boat in this city, and then we took that boat over to this city. Um, this is a cargo ship, you can tell, because it says the ship was to unload its cargo. You also could have known that even if it didn't say that, because that's pretty much all they had back then. My best understanding of like shipping, like the way that boating worked in, um, you know, like at this time in the ancient culture, especially like large ships, there weren't cruise ships for sure. Um, there, I don't even think there were passenger ships at this point in history, okay? It was just, this was not like getting on a bus or getting on a plane. This was, there were ships that would go from one city to another city in order to unload, to get cargo from one city to another city. If you wanted to get from one city to another city by boat, you just found one that was already headed that way. Like you didn't buy a ticket like, like you do at the airport. I just want to go to the exact city that I want to go to. No, you went and you said, okay, if there's a city I want to get to and I want to get there faster and I'll get there by boat, I'm going to get on a cargo ship. I'm going to pay money. I'm going to get in with the cargo and I'm going to go to whatever city it's going to if that city is closer to the city I want to get to than the city I'm standing in, right? So I'll pay money, I'll get in that boat, I'll go to that city. Now I'm still not where I wanna be, right? Because it's not like a plane where I can direct flight. I'm still not where I wanna be, but I'm closer to where I wanna be than I was. And so I'll figure out how to get there from here rather than figuring out how to get there from there. So that's what they do. So they arrive at Tyre. Tyre is not where they wanna be. Jerusalem is where he wants to end up. So he wants to pick a port that's closer to Jerusalem than Tyre, but Tyre is where the ship was going. So he takes the ship, he shows up in Tyre and they start to unload the cargo there. Verse four. So we found some disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So he shows up in Tyre, which is not the city he wants to be in. And apparently he's stuck there for seven days. I don't know if that's because the ship took seven days to unload its cargo or if that's how long he had to wait for another ship to show up, but he's there for a week, okay? And it says they found some disciples while they were there. And the way that that's worded makes it sound like these were people they did not know prior to this. There is no evidence in the book of Acts that I know of that Paul had ever been to Tyre before this or that he had led these people to Christ or that he had started a church there. This seems to be Christians that were already there unrelated to like his ministry. And so when they show up in Tyre, what do they do? The first thing they do is they go, hey, well, we're Christians. Let's find the Christians that are here in this town and let's hang out with them, right? And so they do that. In fact, it says they stayed there for seven days, probably stayed with those disciples. Those Christians probably said, if you've got to be here for seven days, you can stay with us, right? You're our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, you can stay with us. And so they stayed there um, with the disciples. It's a, the second sentence also matters a lot. Uh, we'll get to that later in the sermon. Through the spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So these are friends of his, probably new friends. They're all hanging out together as Christians and they hear that he's going to Jerusalem and they say to him, don't go. All right, next verse, uh, verse five. When our days there were over, we left to continue our journey while all of them with their wives and children escorted us out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said goodbye to one another 
And then we boarded the ship and they returned home. So there's another farewell here. It's not as weepy as the last one, probably because these people were, had only been friends with them for a week rather than for years. But nonetheless, you can see they do care about each other. They take the wives and the children out there to the beach and see them off. Like these, these are Christians that are caring for one another. And then they move on to the next city. They get on a boat and go to the next one. So verse seven, when we completed our voyage from Tyre, we reached Ptolemaeus, where, now look what happens, the same thing. We greeted the brothers and stayed with them one day. Right, so they find the Christians, and in this case, they only stayed one day instead of seven because of whatever reason. Um, so this is the second city that it's happened to where they found the Christians there and hung out with them, and the Christians said, hey, why don't you come stay with us for a little while? Then it happens again at the next city, verse eight. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. So we've seen sort of the same, three, the same thing happen three times in a row. This one's a little different though because it actually names the person that they stayed with. So the first city they show up to a tire, it just says he stayed with some Christians there or you know, he was with the Christians there. And then the second one says he stayed with the brothers, right? The Christians who were in Ptolemaeus. And then he goes to Caesarea, but this time it says the name of the person instead of just staying with some Christians. It specifically says they entered into the house of Philip the evangelist. That's gonna matter later on in the sermon also. And they stayed with him. So before I keep reading, I will just point out there was a lot of hospitality that Christians showed each other at this time. That when Paul is traveling from city to city to city, he's able to go into these cities and find like-minded people. He's able to find believers who are willing to, it sounds like, take him into their home and probably feed him a meal, give him a place to stay until he can go to the next city. Now that hospitality like that was much more vital in that culture than it is in ours because they didn't have hotels and restaurants everywhere like we do. And so the Christians traveling around, a lot of times it would be a big deal. That would be their one shot. If somebody else who said, oh, well, I'm, I, you're my brother in Christ. You're my, you know, God's your father, God's my father. Like you, you, stay, with, you stay with us, right? We'll, we'll help you until you need to go on to the next city. And so I realize um, some of the specifics of that aren't gonna apply to us as much in a culture with restaurants and hotels, right? We don't usually drive, like you don't, I'd probably almost no one here travels across the country hoping to meet random Christians who will take them into their home as they travel. But the principle I think is still the same, that we as Christians are supposed to treat fellow believers as brothers and sisters. We're supposed to treat fellow believers like family, whatever that looks like in our culture. So that's what happens in these cities. And then verse 10, while we were staying there many days, so this is Caesarea, the third city, while we're staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says, which I'm guessing they were really paying attention at this point, okay, because the guy's tied up. This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into Gentile hands. When we heard this, both we and the local people begged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So he's in Caesarea and a prophet shows up. The guy's name is Agabus. Agabus has shown up once or twice before already in this story. He's a prophet. I think he's the prophet that prophesied about a famine back in chapter 13, if I remember right. I didn't go back and check. Anyway, so now he comes in this case and he takes Paul's belt, which is probably like some sort of piece of fabric or something that he would wrap around his outer cloak in order to keep it closed. And he ties his hands and feet with it and says, the owner of this belt this is gonna happen to them when they go to Jerusalem. They're gonna get bound, right? They're gonna get the owner of this belt, which is who? Paul. Paul. Paul's gonna get arrested when he goes to Jerusalem. That's the prophecy. When the Christians that were all standing around as the prophecy was given heard it, they went, well, then don't go to Jerusalem. Like if, it's, if that's the prophecy, you go to Jerusalem, you get arrested, then don't go. 
Okay, so what does Paul do? Let's look at the next verse, verse 13. Then Paul replied, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. They said, don't go, don't go. It says that bad things are gonna happen. The Holy Spirit says bad things are gonna happen to you, so don't go. And he goes, come on, guys, what are you doing this for? Why are you making this harder on me than it has to be? Of course I don't wanna go and have bad things happen to me, but I've... It seems like that's what he's saying. I, I gotta do this, right? You're telling I'm gonna be arrested. I know I'm willing to be arrested. I'm willing to go beyond that. I'm willing to die for Jesus. Verse 14, since he would not be persuaded. Ever met someone that would not be persuaded? Since he would not be persuaded, we stopped talking and simply said, the Lord's will be done. And that's where we end our passage today. So last week, Paul's in Miletus and he talks to the elders. Next week, if the Lord wills, the plan is to cover what happens when he shows up in Jerusalem. This section of scripture describes the journey from Miletus to Jerusalem and the things that happen during that journey. There are two surprising things that I wanna point out to you in this passage. Um, one of them, maybe you could have noticed on your own, the other one, maybe you wouldn't have, but two surprising things. The first surprising thing in this passage is, it seems like in this passage, it seems like it was God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem. And it also seems like it was God's will for Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Did you notice that in the passage? So it's, it's, it seems like Paul's supposed to go to Jerusalem. And then it also seems like God said, don't go to Jerusalem. So which one is it, right? When I say it seems like it was God's will for him to go to Jerusalem, I guess I'm gonna start with verse 13 to make this point. For his verse 13, he says, for I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then the rest of the book of Acts, um, you can see he's willing to do whatever it takes, whatever Jesus wants him to do. And if you, if you look at the rest of the book of Acts, it sure seems like Paul did God's will. Like it was God's will for him to go to Jerusalem. So at this point, if you, if you go back to verse 12, you can almost see this. Luke is one of the characters in the story, right? So he says, when we, Luke's one of the people, when we heard this, that you're gonna get arrested in, um, Jerusalem, both we and the local people begged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So you got to remember, Luke is like in this story twice in the sense that Luke is one of the characters in the story saying, don't go. But he's also the guy that years later wrote the story down. And at the time he wrote the story down, he had more information than he did when he was in the story, right? So in the story, it sure looks to me that Luke is one of the people saying, it is not God's will for you to go to Jerusalem. Do not go. However, Luke is the guy who also wrote what happened next. Luke wrote chapter 22 of Acts. Luke wrote 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, and 28 of Acts. He wrote the rest of the book. He knows what happens after this. So at the time that he doesn't know what's going on, he says, hey, do not go to Jerusalem. But by the end of the story, and I'm not gonna read the rest of the book of Acts this morning, um, although we do plan to basically read the rest of the book of Acts this summer because we're gonna keep teaching through the life of Paul. But if you, so as you read through it, I think you're gonna see, it sure seems to me that Luke, by the end of the story, came to the conclusion yeah, it was God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem. What happened was what was supposed to happen. But if that's true, then we got a problem because look at verse four, okay? we got this idea that it looks like the author of the book is saying it was God's will that he go to Jerusalem. But then the person said, this is what happened. Look at verse four. This is when they get to Tyre. We found some disciples there and stayed there seven days. Through the spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. If this verse just said, we went there for seven days and they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem, then I would just think, okay, well, Paul was supposed to go to Jerusalem 
and they had a different opinion and they gave their opinion. They said, don't go. And Paul said, you know, that's your opinion. And he didn't go. That's not the way it's phrased though. Luke says, through the spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Well, under normal circumstances, when I'm returning, like interpreting my Bible, if I didn't have the rest of the chapter, what I would assume through the spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem is the Holy Spirit revealed to them, go tell Paul that I say, don't go to Jerusalem, right? That's sure what it looks like. But if God said to them, go tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem and it's God's will to go to Jerusalem, then what's going on here? Who, who's right? What do we do with this kind of difficult passage? That's why I mean, it's kind of surprising that you'd have this in the Bible. So I wanna give you three possible interpretations. Well, I think one of them is not really possible, but I like to throw the bad one out first. Okay, so number one, one option is the Holy Spirit was giving contradictory messages to people, okay? The Holy Spirit guided the people in Tyre, the Christians there showed up and said to them, hey, tell Paul that I say, don't go to Jerusalem. And then the Holy Spirit went to Paul and said, okay, you gotta go to Jerusalem, okay? And then the Holy Spirit stood back and went, let's see what happens, okay? <laughs> I do not believe that's what happened, Okay? I do not believe that the Holy Spirit stirs up division among his people. Okay, so option two. Option two is the Holy Spirit was giving one consistent message and that Paul was disobeying it. That the Holy Spirit was saying, don't go to Jerusalem and Paul was disobeying it. Now, the reason I like this one a lot better is because at least this one is possible. Okay, this one's possible because Paul is not Jesus. Amen? Paul is not Jesus Christ. He is capable of doing the wrong thing. He is a human being. He's a fellow Christian like us. He's our brother in Christ. It is possible that God would reveal something to his Christian friends and say, I tell you not to go. And that Paul hears it and goes, I, okay, that's what God's will is. And I, I, disagree, I, don't, I don't wanna do it. I, I rebel against God's will. I don't do what he says to do. Like, at least that's possible. It is possible for Paul to disobey. But I don't think that's what's going on in this chapter either. And the reason why is because of the way that Luke phrases it, particularly verse 13. When he says, why, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul said this, but you gotta remember, Luke is choosing which quotes to include and which ones not to include, right? Paul probably said lots of things during those two weeks. Luke is telling this story, and this is the way, this is the part he chooses to quote, where Paul says, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Luke tells this story in such a way that it sure looks like Paul is trying to obey Jesus. He is trying to do the right thing. He is trying to follow God's will. If Luke in this passage was trying to communicate to his readers... God told us that he was not supposed to go to Jerusalem and I knew it and Agabus knew it and the, piece, the just Christians in Tyre knew it. We all knew that that was not God's will and we told him and he just rebelled against God and did it anyway. If that's what Luke wanted to communicate to us happened, he would have phrased it differently than this. He sure makes it look like Paul was like doing something very difficult trying to do God's will. So that leaves us with the third interpretation. This is the one I believe. And I think pretty much any book that you ever read on this section is pretty, it seems like everyone I came across said this. So interpretation number three is that the Holy Spirit warned all of the parties involved of the same thing. Paul's gonna be arrested in Jerusalem. Told the people in Tyre, it's not gonna go well in Jerusalem. Gave it to Agabus, he's gonna get tied up when he goes in Jerusalem, right? Luke, all of them, they all got this information. It's gonna go, but Paul even knew it too. I think he mentions it in the chapter before. The same information was given to everybody. The Holy Spirit warned everybody the same way. It's gonna go bad in Jerusalem. And different people interpreted that differently. Some of the Christians heard that and went, well, then don't go. And some of them, Paul in particular went, but I gotta go. He didn't, I, I don't disagree with you. The Holy Spirit says I'm gonna get tied up and arrested there. Like I agree, the Holy Spirit said that. 
but I, I gotta go and let that bad stuff happen to me. I know you heard that and went, that means I shouldn't go, but I heard the same thing and I say, I, I should go. I need to go through with this. I don't want to, but I need to do this. Now, if that's true, then a possible application for us could be for us to realize that you could misinterpret guidance from the Holy Spirit. Just like you can misinterpret a Bible verse, right? The Bible is God's word, but you can misunderstand it. You, can, you could misunderstand something that the Holy Spirit is guiding you. So that's the first surprising thing. And that one is the one that I just think like, it's surprising that it's in the Bible. It's surprising that Luke would write down this in such a way that it's like the, the Holy Spirit, you know, through the Holy Spirit, they said this, and then Paul didn't do it. And isn't he great? You know what I mean? It's just surprising that that would be in there. The second surprising thing is not surprising that it would be in the Bible. It's the kind of thing you'd expect would be in the Bible. It's just one of those things that it's surprising that it actually happened. It's surprising that it took place. And so here's the second surprising thing. In Caesarea, the apostle Paul stayed with Philip, the evangelist. Now I noticed there was no one here going, when I said that. And I'm guessing that might be because you don't know exactly who Philip the evangelist is. And that's fine, it's my job to fix that this morning. But any of you who may know who Philip the evangelist is would know that the fact that Paul stayed with him for the week, (laughs) that would have required radical forgiveness. So let me tell you the story. Because what's happening here is, I, I feel like we're kind of in movie number two. And Paul shows up to Philip's house and he opens the door. He shows up to a house. If this is a movie, we don't know whose house it is yet. He shows up to a house, he knocks on the door. The door opens and there's Philip. And here's the thing, Philip is a character from movie number one. But this is the first time he's showing up in this movie, right? So, so if we didn't watch movie number one, we don't know what, what, why is this significant? Who's the guy that's on the other side of the door? So we gotta go back and watch movie number one in order to know who is this person because it's not the first time he showed up in the story. So we're gonna go back to Acts chapter six, seven, and eight. Those three chapters, I will not read all three chapters to you, but I'll read some excerpts from them just so you can get an idea of what had been going on before this. We're gonna go back about 20 years, okay? And what had happened earlier than this? So pay attention, and then you're gonna see like, whoa, what a big deal that this is the house he stayed in. So Acts chapter six, starting in verse one. In those days, as the number of disciples was multiplying, meaning this was a point where Christianity was spreading. Lots of people were becoming Christians, okay? Number of disciples was multiplying. There arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So the church, as as the church was sort of exploding and lots of people were becoming Christians, there was this daily distribution for widows. Apparently there were widows in the community who were vulnerable to like either homelessness or starvation, something like that. And so they were looking out for the widows and caring for them. So, but there's a problem. Some of them were being shown favoritism over the other ones. So the problem happens and here's the issue, verse two. Then the 12, that's the 12 apostles, summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle financial matters. Therefore, brothers, select from among you, now what's the number? Seven, that's very important. Pay attention to that number, it's gonna matter later. Select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the preaching ministry, okay? This is the first time that I'm aware of in Christianity, like in Christian ministry, where ministry was broken down into multiple departments, okay? At this point, it seems like Christianity was just like, everybody's just trying to follow God and they're preaching and they're taking care of widows and everybody's just doing their job. And then it becomes too much and there's certain things that are going poorly. And so they said, no, no, we need to break this into two departments. We're gonna have 12 and we're gonna have seven. We're gonna have 12 and we're gonna pray and we're gonna preach the Bible. And then we've got, 
seven, and they're going to take over the widow thing and make sure that the problem that happened never happens again, okay? So that's the issue that happens here. Now, the next verse is going to list who the seven men were that were given widow duty. I want you to pay attention to this list, particularly the first two names on the list. Very important for the rest of the story. The proposal, that is, we'll do our part, you do your part. The proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose, now what's the first name? Stephen, pay attention to that name. That's gonna matter a whole lot. Stephen's the first one they picked. So got a list of seven guys on widow duty. Stephen's number one. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and Holy Spirit. And who's number two? Philip. Philip is the, Philip the evangelist. He's the guy from chapter 21 that we're learning about today. Okay? Those are the two guys you need to pay attention to for the rest of the story. There were, now it's seven, so there were five other guys. I'm sure they were wonderful people. I'm going to ignore, the, ignore them for this sermon because they're not part of this. Okay? Stephen and Philip are the ones that I want you to pay attention to. Stephen and Philip. These two guys, according to this verse, were coworkers. They were on the same team. They were on the same department. They were working together to make sure the widows got fed. Stephen and Philip were on this team of seven people together, okay? So they are cer- they're certainly coworkers, and I'm guessing they're probably more than that. They're probably friends, okay? Yes, they're working together, but they're working together in Christian ministry at the very beginning when Christians were all understanding, like, you're my brother and, and I'm your sister, and people were selling stuff that they had in order to meet the needs of other people. So they would have recognized each other as brothers and as friends, as well as coworkers. So these coworkers, brothers, friends, right? Stephen and Philip, I bet you they were fairly close, loved one another, worked together. That's important to understand because here's the next thing that happens. Next part of the story, Stephen is talking to people about Jesus. He's preaching, which I know he had widow duty, but apparently he was also allowed to talk about Jesus. And he did. And there were people who got very frustrated with him. And they did not like his views about Jesus and the Messiah, which are similar to what we believe to this day. Like he was talking about Christianity and the Jewish people there did not like that. They were very upset and started arguing with him about it. Verse 12 of that chapter says, they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came, dragged him off. The him there is Stephen, number one on the list of seven. They dragged him off and took him to the Sanhedrin. So dragged him off, meaning like they arrested him, right? And they took him against his will to the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin in this case would have been like a court Um, a religious court that would listen to him and decide whether he's committed blasphemy or not and what the punishment should be if he has. So the chapter seven is basically the speech that Stephen gives at his trial where he explains what he believes about the Old Testament and the Messiah and all this stuff. And they do not like it. They do not like what he believes. They're very angry at him. And so verse 58 of that chapter, it says, they threw him out of the city. The him there is Stephen. They threw him out of the city and began to stone him for blasphemy. Because he believed what many of us in this room believe. They began to stone him. Now look at the next sentence. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is the same guy that we know of as Paul, which means Paul and Philip and Stephen were all in the same orbit earlier in the story. Paul shows up to Philip's house, but this is not the first time they've been in the same city together. They were all in Jerusalem together at the same time. So there's Stephen and there's Saul and Philip's wherever he is. And it's time to stone Stephen. And what side is Saul on? He's on the kill Stephen side, right? The witnesses laid their robes. So witnesses, I think, would be the people who had just accused him of blasphemy and were about to throw rocks at him. They laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, the the robes being like the outer garment. He's kind of the coat check guy. He holds all their stuff. Hey, I'll watch your stuff while you guys go and kill him. I'm assuming they took the robes off maybe to get a better throwing arm at the thing or I don't know, blood spatter. I'm not sure why, but they all took their outer garments off. Saul said, I'll be happy to watch these. You go get him. You go kill that guy. This is... 
Philip's brother, co-worker, maybe close friend, and, and Saul is there going, yeah, kill him. All right, so here we go, verse 59. They were stoning Stephen as he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And saying this, he fell asleep. And fell asleep, his Bible speak for dead, died, right? They threw rocks at him until he fell asleep. So Stephen's there. They go to stone him to death. Saul's holding the robes. And Stephen kneels down. And the last thing that we are aware of that Stephen says is a prayer. He talks to God in that moment. And the thing that he says to God is, don't hold this against them. Why in the world was Stephen talking like that? Why was he praying like that? He was being like his savior because Jesus had done the same thing just a few weeks earlier. Remember when Jesus died on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus was praying for the forgiveness of his murderers as they were murdering him. And a few weeks or months later, Stephen is in the same position, being to stone to death, and he does the same thing. He says, God, don't hold this against them. He prays for the forgiveness of the people that are killing him as they're killing him. So then here's the very next verse, verse eight, or chapter eight, verse one. Saul agreed with putting him to death, which is helpful to know that we interpreted the verse earlier correctly. When it said he was holding the robes, we interpreted it correctly. He was doing it as a show of support. He was holding the robes, not because he was forced to do it against his will, because he was there going, yeah, we need to kill these people. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. So things get even worse. Now, I don't know where Philip is at this time, but he's in town. I don't know if he was there and he watched Stephen get stoned to death or if he just heard about it the next day. But Philip's friend Stephen is killed for being a Christian and then they start going after the other Christians in town. And it's so severe that the people in town, at least many of them, scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria, meaning moved away, meaning the persecution was so bad that the thousands of Christians that were in Jerusalem all said, we're gonna have to live somewhere else. They keep hurting us. They keep attacking us. We're gonna have to go. And so people like moved to other villages and other towns in the area to get away from the persecution. Verse two of that chapter, devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. I don't know if this is just the people who did not scatter or if this is something that happened just before the scattering, okay? Maybe Philip was one of the people who was there at the funeral for his friend Stephen. And while they're burying Stephen and mourning over his loss, Saul, however, was ravaging the church. Now he's not just holding robes anymore. He would enter house after house and drag off men and women and put them in prison. And he was doing this over and over again to the point that people had to move out of town to get away from terrible persecuting Saul. Verse four, the next verse. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the message of the good news, <laughs> which is so cool. My, one of my kids actually came up to me after the first sermon and he said, wait a minute. So when Paul persecuted them, did that, that actually cause like Christianity to spread like better and faster? And the answer is yes. Like Paul actually helped spread the good news before, like before he was voluntarily doing it because he went around persecuting the people. And so what happened is they all moved out of town and they went to other towns and they told the people in those towns about Jesus, these towns where they weren't being persecuted. And so Christianity started to spread outside of Jerusalem because of this. Now, who look who one of the scatterers was? Philip. So people are running to other cities. Philip is one of them. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. 
So Saul is going around throwing Christians in prison. He was just there approving of the death of Stephen. And Philip, number two on the list of seven, is one of the people who runs out of town to not be persecuted by Saul. And he goes to Samaria and tells those people about Jesus. Now, the rest of that chapter tells more stuff about Philip. I'm gonna skip it for now and just go straight to verse 40 and just end where Luke ends Philip's story. This is the last thing that Luke says about Philip until our story when Paul shows up to his house. This is the last verse. Here it is, chapter eight, verse 40. Philip appeared in Azotus and he was traveling and evangelizing all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So Philip's now left Jerusalem because of the persecution. He tra- he's traveling and evangelizing all the towns, which is very interesting. That, first of all, that's how he gets the name Philip the Evangelist, right? Why is he called Philip the Evangelist? Because he was traveling and evangelizing all the towns, which means Philip was actually a lot like Paul, wasn't he? Throughout this story on the life of Paul, we've noticed that Paul has gone from city to city, town after town, telling people about Jesus who don't know about Jesus. Now we find out, this is interesting, Philip was doing that before Paul ever thought of it. Philip was going around from town to town telling people about Jesus. And he was evangelizing all the towns until, notice, until he came to Caesarea. That's where he stopped. That's where he set up his headquarters. That's, that's where he made his new hometown. And he chose to live there. Now we don't hear any more about that until 15 chapters later. And about in, like in time, it was about maybe about 20 years later. And we come across this verse. This is Acts 21, verse eight. The next day we left and came to Caesarea. We know who lives there. Where we entered the house of Philip the evangelist. <sighs> right? Wait, is that, is that the same Philip from earlier? Yes, it is. How do I know? Here's why. He's Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven. That's why I want you to pay attention to that seven. Because Luke is, Luke is telling us, this is the guy I was talking about back in chapter six, seven, and eight right? So Luke doesn't make a big deal about it. He doesn't say, whoa, how forgiving must Philip had to have been? He doesn't say all of that, but he definitely makes it clear to his readers, I'm not talking about any Philip. I'm talking about the guy back from chapter six, seven, and eight. And if you've read chapter six, seven, eight, then you realize, whoa, when Paul shows up to the house and Philip welcomes him in and says, I'll cook you a meal and you can stay with me, brother, Philip was showing hospitality to the guy who was on team kill my friends. Last time he saw him, Philip was showing hospitality to the guy who chased him out of his hometown and is the reason he's in Caesarea at this moment. This is some serious forgiveness. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings about incredible forgiveness and reconciliation. The gospel brings about incredible forgiveness and reconciliation between us and God. And the gospel brings about incredible forgiveness and reconciliation between humans one to another. When 20 years later, Paul shows up to the house of Philip the evangelist, the guy he chased out of town, the guy he was on team kill Stephen. Philip did not open the door and greet him with these words. He did not say, my name is Philip the evangelist. You kill my friend. (laughs) Prepare to die. (laughs) He did not do that, did he? It's interesting. It's cool for me to see who's over 30 and who's under 30. (laughs) Okay. He does not take revenge on this man. Rather, what does Philip do? Apparently, it doesn't say what he said, but apparently he realized that God forgave him. And if God forgave him, then he should forgive him. If God had accepted this man... 
then he should accept this man as his brother in Christ because that's what he does. This is so crazy. Philip opens his door and lo- this is so crazy. Philip locks the door, but it, not the way you'd think. You'd think he'd lock the door with Paul out of the house, but he welks Paul, welcomes Paul into the house and locks the door and says, I'll take care of you. I'll protect you in my house with my young daughters. I'll, I'll take care of you this week. Whoo. That's some serious forgiveness. And apparently what Philip saw, and I don't know if he realized that's what was happening or not, but what he was seeing with his own eyes was God, that God answered the prayer that Stephen had prayed the day he died. Remember the prayer? He was on his knees and he said, do not charge them with this sin. That man that said that was looking at a group of people who were holding rocks, who were throwing them at him. And I'm guessing maybe could look over their shoulder and over into the corner with the guy who's holding all the robes. And he's referring to these people who hate him. And he says, don't, don't hold this sin against them. And God apparently answered that prayer with a yes, at least for one of those people, Saul. Saul did not die and go to hell because of Stephen's death. Saul did not die and go to hell because he persecuted the church. God answered Stephen's prayer. I don't know how many people God answered his prayer to. It could have been other ones. But for sure with one of them, God answered his prayer with a yes. And he saved that man who was holding the robes and who started persecuting everybody the next day. Or shortly after. And so Philip, whether he knew it or not, was seeing that prayer being answered. Okay. How does this story apply to us? <laughs> well, perhaps this is a reminder that if God forgives someone, you should forgive someone. Perhaps this is a reminder that if God is willing to forgive someone, we should be willing to forgive that someone. I remember hearing a preacher say, and this was a long time ago, I think I was 19, I was listening to the sermon on audio cassette, and I can, but the, the, the way he said it was just very memorable, and so I still remember it. He was talking about forgiveness, and he talked about the fact that the person that you've sinned against has offended God even more so than they've offended you. Like they've sinned against God worse than they've sinned against you. And if God is willing to forgive them, Shouldn't you be willing to forgive them? And then he said something like this. He said, or are you a part of a court that is higher than God? If God declares a person to be forgiven, do you get to have higher standards? And say, well, that's God's decision, but then let me make the right one. Is that how it works? Are you a member of a court higher than God? When God says he forgives someone, do you get to go along and go, well, that's nice, but let me see if I can make the correct decision? Is that how it works? Is God the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and you the Supreme Court? Of course not. And so perhaps today is the day that you forgive that person whom God has forgiven. Or perhaps today is the day you decide to love that person whom God is willing to forgive. I realize there are some people that maybe God hasn't forgiven them in the sense that they have not repented of their sins and become a follower of Jesus Christ. But God is willing to forgive anyone who would come to him, right? And so you could love someone and be willing to forgive whoever God is willing to forgive. And so I'll pray that some of you will have like the courage and the ability to do that even today. Today's passage ends with Paul, this is the last thing Paul says in this passage in verse 13. He says, for I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So just one last little lesson here is, and this is, I think, especially powerful when you know what happened back in Acts chapter six, seven, and eight. Paul's going back to Jerusalem. He's been there before. 
several times. He goes back to Jerusalem, but he's going back this time ready to be Stephen. Right? He was in Jerusalem before, and Stephen was the one being stoned to death, and he was the one holding the robes. Like He was on the other team from Stephen last time. But this time he's going to Jerusalem and he says, I'm willing to be arrested. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to stand in Stephen's place while some other dude is holding the ropes. And that is a reminder of something that really is not just in this passage, but is all over the Bible. That Jesus is more important than anything and everything. Let's pray. God, we praise you and worship you this morning. In particular, we worship you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for this story in particular, this portion of your word. I pray you'd help us to show hospitality in whatever that looks like in our culture to care for other brothers and sisters in Christ like they're our family. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you guide us. I pray you'd help us to interpret things well. There are times when we may misunderstand things, but we wanna follow you. And I pray especially for anybody in this room who's struggling with forgiveness. I'm sure there's gotta be. In a room this size, there's no way, with this number of people, there's no way there aren't some people who are going, I don't want to do this. But I pray that you would give them the courage to do it, even the, I don't know what the right word is, the feelings. I, I was watching Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson movie, uh, I don't know, maybe it was about a month ago now, and I saw the scene where the actor portraying Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, and I thought about a particular two people that I was just really, I don't know, just really frustrated at. And as I watched it, I just, I don't know, something happened in my emotions where I just, it seemed like I was just like, oh, okay, I'm done with that. I'm done, I'm just, I don't, I, I don't know what forgiveness is, but I, but I choose it right now for sure. And if I'd already choose it, I renew it right now. But I just remember God, I felt like you just gave me like, <sighs> that relief and that peace and that like ability to just, you know, let go. It, it felt good. And so I ask for that, for some people in this room right now. I pray that they would have the courage to make the decision they need to make and I pray that you would give them that like, <sighs> it's over. I also thank you for sending Paul ahead of us so that we would know like these things like, doesn't matter if we're arrested, doesn't matter if we're killed, like you, Jesus, are more important than anything and everything in our life and I pray you'd help us to act like that. And I thank you that our acting like that is not the thing that like propels you to love us. I thank you that you loved us while we were still sinners. I know we have no ability to please you on our own, just trying really hard to be good. We thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you for your forgiveness and your grace. And thank you that we can live, in some cases, really radical, hard to believe it even happens lives in reaction to what you've done for us. Thank you, Jesus. That's whose name we pray this in. Amen. Let me end with these good words from God's word. This is from Philippians. These are also, this is something from the writings of Paul. He said, but everything that was a gain to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord 
Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. That is good news.